Well, this morning we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. I think so often we perceive that religion is for religious people. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories about people who've come to church their whole life, and finally they come to church for the very first time, they make it here, and the question is, what are they expecting when they first come to church? What do they find? When people come to church, do they find warm, loving, gracious people who are overjoyed with the grace and the good news of Jesus Christ? Or do they find a bunch of hypocritical religious people slavishly following rules and looking down their noses at outsiders? Thankfully, the testimony of many people who have come here to our church is that we have been warm and welcoming, and I thank God for that. In fact, I once overheard one of our churchgoers tell a visitor, you're going to love it here, there's no rules. I heard what they said. I'm not going to point them out in the congregation because they know who they are. (laughs) But many times I think people struggle with so-called organized religion. Again, they feel a spiritual hunger. They come to church because they're hungry for something, but yet they worry about how they're going to be received because they don't know all the rules. They don't know the religious culture, the buzzwords. They don't understand the doctrine. They're not familiar with the practices. So I think sometimes it can be intimidating for someone to come to church for the first time. Throughout the course of history, Christianity has not been exempt from this problem because there are hypocrites in the world and there are hypocrites in the church. But the nature of Christianity, it's different than every other religion in the world. While most religions are built on rules of how to get to God, biblical Christianity is built on the good news message of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. The church is not built on perfect people. It is built on forgiven people. Those who have had their sins forgiven by Jesus Christ. And it's been this way since the very beginning. However, even since the very beginning, there have been those who have opposed this effort. Today's passage tells a story of one such encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so turn in your copy of Scripture to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. The first half of Matthew 9 really showcases the heart of Jesus' ministry, which is to bring restoration and healing to sinners. Last week we looked at the account of the paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus. However, Jesus' initial response was not to heal his body, but to heal his soul through forgiveness of his sins. Of course, this sends the religious leaders into a tizzy as they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, because after all, and this is the question they pose in their own minds, who can forgive sins except God alone? And by virtue of the fact that Jesus has pronounced the forgiveness of sins, he's claiming to be God. Jesus demonstrates this power of God by healing the man completely to the amazement of all the onlookers. But Jesus is not done, not by a long shot. There's going to be more miracles, more forgiveness, and more opposition. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. Today's message I'm titling, Calling All Sinners, starting in verse 9 of Matthew 9. As Jesus went out, or excuse me, went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. 
Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now this passage begins with the calling of Matthew, but quickly transitions to a discussion about ministering to spiritually sick people. But let's start with Matthew himself. Matthew. Verse 9 begins with the phrase, as Jesus went on from there. Now he's back in the fishing village of Capernaum uh, along the Sea of Galilee. That's his new base of operations. Again, he's he comes originally from Nazareth, that's where he grows up, but he transitions to, uh, to, uh, to Capernaum, that's where he's working. He's been teaching and healing people all throughout the region, he's been traveling around, doing his ministry, but there's a sense in, as he's traveling from place to place, he's, he's healing people, he's teaching, and as he's just come from healing this paralytic, he's walking down the street, it seems, and he passes by the tax collector's booth. The position of the tax collector or publican, as they were also called, was an especially hated post. There's really no comparison in our culture. In the past, when I've wanted to make very quick comments about the nature of that office, I oftentimes have just made a a passing reference to what we would consider to be like IRS agents. But in truth, it's actually not quite the same. Again, I use that as a very brief parallel to give you a a general sense of the idea, but there's, there's more nuance to this. And by comparison, IRS agents, they're American citizens whose job is to collect taxes for which they're paid a fair wage. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were different. When Rome invaded and took over Israel, they remained as an occupying power. They were often very oppressive and hateful toward the Jews, caring very little about their customs and culture. And when it came to collecting taxes, what they essentially did is they subcontracted the duties out to Jewish citizens who could essentially capitalize on this business as a franchise. You could go get a tax-collecting franchise from the Roman government, and you could go set up shop and be a tax collector for Rome. And in their effort to collect taxes, they were allowed also to, to pad the tax bill with their own fees and their own compensation. So the way that they would get paid is by charging a little extra in the bill to cover their cost, and then they would give the difference to Rome. As long as Rome got their money, they really didn't care what the individual tax collectors were charging, which is oftentimes exorbitant. Added to this, in order to enforce the payment of taxes and fees, these publicans were allowed to use the full authority of the Roman military to ensure that citizens paid the taxes. So essentially, you have this. You have a tax collector who's a Jewish citizen, he's a member of Israel, who goes and works the Romans to collect taxes and basically extort money from the Jews to give to the Romans and then pad the account and charge extra fees and extra uh, expenses. And if anybody had a problem with it, they could bring in the military and say, you have to pay me. This made tax collectors despised people. They were regarded as traitors by their own people. So, again, for our, for our context, there's really no equivalent. There's no equivalent at all. They were regarded as thieves because they extorted money from their own people. They were regarded as traitors because they sold them out to the Romans, who also were hated. 
According to one scholar, Alfred Edersheim, tax collectors were excommunicated from Jewish social life and barred from all religious practices and even from the synagogue. So they were detestable people in every single component of religious culture. And while the tax collectors were oftentimes rich, the price for their wealth was the loss of everything that made them who they are. Their friends, their religion, their social standing, many times their own family. They were perhaps the most hated people in all of Israel. And this is who Jesus sees as he's walking down the street. Now, it's possible that Jesus already had dealings with Matthew in the past. It's very possible living in Capernaum, he probably went to his booth to pay his taxes. It's very possible. But on this day, he sees him for a very different reason. The name here, Matthew, means gift of God. It's a great name, one that my my wife and I chose for our son. Uh, Matthew means gift of God. We also know from Mark 2.14, though, this person, Matthew, is also called Levi. He's the son of Alphaeus. It was not uncommon for people to have two names. Sometimes they had two Hebrew names. Sometimes they would have a Hebrew name. We know them by their Greek name to differentiate. But regardless, this is Matthew, the writer of this gospel. He puts himself into the story, even though he's pretty veiled and pretty general with how he deals with himself. He's, he's not like John, who calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. You know, No, Matthew's pretty, he, he's pretty, uh, pretty low on himself. He just kind of gives the bare essentials and then moves on. He refers to himself here as Matthew, and he recalls in his own account that he was sitting, sitting in the tax collector's booth. And on this day, Jesus approaches him and says, follow me. Now you have to see there's a startling nature to this account. Because the only interaction that Matthew would have normally had with the public would have been angry Jews who cursed him as they pay their bill and then spit on his shoes as they watch him walk away. But here, Jesus approaches him in kindness. More than this, Jesus is coming to him not as a taxpayer. He's coming to him as a rabbi, as a respected teacher in Israel. And let me tell you, no rabbi, no rabbi would have wanted to have a tax collector as a disciple. That would have been bad press for your ministry. You're trying to gain a ministry following as a rabbi in Israel. The worst guy you could pick to be one of your students was a tax collector that everybody else hated. Okay? This is, this is the, the countercultural nature of Jesus' own ministry. This would have sullied the ministry, really. But yet Jesus comes to Matthew, and he says, follow me. Now, what's interesting about this, and to be very clear, he's not just asking him to follow kind of in a, a very general metaphorical sense. No, he's asking him to follow as a disciple. What is a disciple? It's a, a learner. It's a student. We're going to talk a lot about discipleship in the coming weeks and months here, but I want to just say that this this is a a person who's learning from this rabbi. Rabbis were teachers of the law, but they were more than that, though. They They taught on biblical law, they taught religion, they taught various aspects of philosophy, Jewish culture. They were really the theologians, the traveling theologians of their day. They would just kind of wander around itinerantly, and as they would walk around, they would they would bring followers along with them and they would teach them as they go. And if his teaching was good, then students would desire to follow him, literally. So you had rabbis all over Israel walking around the streets and a whole slew of students behind them taking notes and listening. And they would travel from synagogue to synagogue and they would teach. And they just have this ministry of teaching and a culture of discipleship in Israel. And the disciples, when they were following, they literally were following behind them. But Jesus did things differently. 
Whereas in many other cases, you would have the disciples that would want to latch on to you. Jesus approached potential disciples and told them to follow him. This was different. Jesus was picking, hand-picking his own disciples. This was an invitation. In fact, all of Jesus' disciples are called by him personally. He'd walk up and he'd say, you, you follow me. After he was resurrected from the dead, before ascending to heaven, Jesus charged the disciples with carrying on this same model. Just in Matthew 28 alone, 28 verses 18 to 20, Jesus spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then he says this, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. So all Christians are called to be disciples and to follow Jesus. That doesn't just mean apostles and people in the Bible. That's you and me. All of us are called to be disciples. Now, Matthew gives a very modest account, as I've mentioned before, about his reaction. But Luke actually adds more information. Luke 5.28 tells us that Matthew left everything and followed him. Left everything. He left his business. He just closed up shop and walked away. He gave up his franchise, the money. He gave up, really, it would have been a life of ease because Matthew's life after this was not so easy. And from the historical account, in terms of church history, we know that all of the disciples, save one, were martyred for their faith. John died of old age. But the rest of them were all killed, including Matthew. And so he was leaving this career, this job to go and follow Jesus. He left everything. I want you to consider something here. I think it's very easy to say, well, of course he's going to leave it. It's a better situation. He'd already been forsaken by the Jews. So he had nothing in terms of public appeal. He had no friends. He had, I mean, his friends are not the friends that you'd want to have. So he'd been forsaken by his own people. And now he's given up his living and his business. So all that Matthew has now, everything he has now, is Jesus. That's it. I want you to ponder that for a second. He's left everything. And later on, and Peter actually, he kind of complains a little bit, but he tells Jesus later on in the Gospels, we have left everything to follow you, Lord. That's certainly true of Matthew. So what does he do? Luke records that he goes back home and he gives a big, huge reception, a dinner party for Jesus. Jesus is the guest of honor and he brings him into his home. And the question then, okay, if you're going to throw a big, huge dinner party, a big, huge banquet, what does a tax collector or who does a tax collector invite to his house for dinner if he has no friends in Israel? Remember, no self-respecting Jew would have been caught dead in the home of a tax collector. So who shows up to this party? Look at verse 10. It happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, here it is, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Keep in mind, every tax collector in the region was barred from synagogue, all of them. They were despised. And so to eat dinner with a respected rabbi would have actually been a special treat. They would have opportunity to ask him theological questions. They would have said, Rabbi, I haven't been to, you know, to synagogue in 10 years. Uh, what's new in religion? 
They would have been able to ask him all kinds of questions and, and learn from him and gain information and insight and wisdom from him. So the tax collectors were there. And also it says there were many sinners there too. Now, again, understanding the Jews knew theologically that every single person had committed sins. Otherwise, the sacrificial system is null and void. So they all knew that they were all sinners on some level. But the term sinner pertained to a person whose life was especially characterized by sinful patterns. They were given the pejorative title of sinner. So if, let me just give you another example for our purposes even today. If you take a drink of an alcoholic beverage, you're just taking a drink. If that drink consumes you, you become a drunkard. We don't talk like that anymore, but that's the general sense. So again, a person whose life is characterized by whatever besetting sin they have, they're labeled a sinner. This would have included common thieves and swindlers, adulterers and fornicators. It would have included prostitutes, the sexually immoral. It would have included people who were drunkards. It would have even included, on some level, murderers. These people were the dregs of Jewish society, the lowest of the low, culturally. Yet they dined with Jesus and his disciples. I wonder what that was like for the disciples. Who did we sign up to follow? What are we doing here? That guy ripped me off. (laughs) Can you imagine? That would have been dinner with Jesus and all these people. Of course, word would have traveled that a rabbi was dining in the home of a tax collector. And so before too long, the religious leaders, they go out to investigate. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Notice here in the text that the Pharisees don't address Jesus directly. They don't, they don't want to engage him just yet. They engage him later on as they get more angry. But right now, they're kind of taking a sideways approach. They go to his disciples. They go to his disciples. Perhaps they were trying to start some kind of a, a mutiny. I'm not going to go after the rabbi himself, but if I can get the followers to go against him, that'll just shut him down and he'll have no more audience and then he just, he'll be gone. Regardless, the question is not really a question. It's more of an accusation. It's an accusation. Why? Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? What self-respecting teacher, what rabbi would do this? See, the Pharisees, they were on the opposite side of the cultural spectrum. They were fiercely loyal to Israel. They They were regarded as the most upright of all Jews. In truth, they belonged at the table with Jesus more than the sinners and the tax collectors, certainly. Not the filthy sinners. They should have been there in the seat of honor. So they lash out. They lash out. But Jesus is the one who responds. So they go to the disciples. Jesus answers. And his response really comes in a threefold argument. I read a lot about this this week. And actually, John MacArthur gives us a helpful breakdown of the, of the, the scope of how this is laid out. The first argument is an argument from logic. An argument from logic. Look at verse 12. When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. So here, Jesus connects sin with sickness. Now, we've seen in Jesus' other dealings that the two aren't necessarily connected. Contrary to popular belief in Jewish day, that if you were uh, prone to sickness, that means that you had committed some kind of a sin. So they, they link the two. But there's another instance in 
John chapter 9, for example, where Jesus and the disciples, they encounter a man who was born blind. And the disciples, they ask him, uh, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Did he do something wrong, or was it his parents that did something wrong? And Jesus responds, and he says, It was neither this man or his parents who sinned, but rather it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed him. So basically what Jesus is saying is the reason he was born without eyesight is so that I could walk by in this exact moment and heal him and display the glory of God. So it was not connected to this man's sinfulness or the sinfulness of his parents, nothing like that. So we see that they're not always connected. Just because you get really sick, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have sinned against God in some unnaturally egregious way. Now, sometimes our, our sicknesses and sometimes our injuries are from our own sinful actions as a consequence, but that's not always the case. However, we know that sickness exists in the world because of sin's entrance into the world. The reason we have sickness at all is because of the fall of Adam and Eve. It's through Adam that sickness and death and destruction come into the world. But Jesus here is not connecting the two. He's, saying, he's not saying that one causes the other, but yet he still treats sin as a sickness, a spiritual sickness. So here's the logic, and it's very simple. Healthy people don't need a doctor, right? Makes perfect sense. Who, what kind of people need to go to the doctor? Sick people. That's generally the logic here. In the same way that a physician wouldn't set up his practice only to accept Healthy patients. Imagine a doctor who said, I'm not going to treat anybody who's sick. If you've got a cough, don't, go, don't come here. Go somewhere else. That would be very strange, wouldn't it? And so that's the logic here, that a doctor wouldn't do that. Jesus himself is called the great physician. And he goes to where there are spiritually sick people so that he may heal them. So if he is this physician, and if his mission is to heal those who are spiritually sick, then wouldn't it make the most sense that he would go to the sickest people in Israel? That's where he goes. He goes right to the worst possible people he could, the ones who know that they've transgressed the law, and he goes and has dinner with them and spends time with them. Again, the argument is from logic that sick people need a doctor while healthy people do not. The second argument is from Scripture. From Scripture. The beginning of verse 13, he says then to the Pharisees, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. See, the Pharisees, they were teachers of the law and of the Bible. If anybody would have known the word of God, it would have been the Pharisees. And they would have actually known this by heart. I've read some scholarly commentary over the course of time that many of these rabbis, they they would actually learn the entire uh, Torah. So uh, basically Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, they would learn by heart by the age of 12 And many of these more esteemed rabbis and teachers would actually learn the entire Bible, the Old Testament Bible, the the Old Testament uh, scriptures. They would learn it by heart in their ministry. So these guys knew these verses. When Jesus says this verse, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, they knew that verse. But he says, go and learn what this means. This phrase, go and learn, is a, a rabbinic phrase. It's sort of a catchphrase. Go and learn. It was a phrase that you used... Uh, to give study assignments to students. When they didn't know the answer to a question, you didn't give them the answer. You'd say, you know what, I'll tell you what, go and learn what this is all about, and then come back to me. That's essentially what this is. For the Pharisees, this would have been an insult. 
This is like Jesus saying, okay, since you don't understand Judaism 101, why don't you go and learn what this means and then come back to me and we'll talk. That's essentially what he's saying to them. Go and learn what this verse means. The implication is they didn't fundamentally understand what was being said. And so they had to return with better understanding. But what is the verse that he quotes here? Well, it comes from the prophet Hosea. Turn to Hosea, if you would. Hosea chapter 6. The prophet Hosea is writing in the 8th century B.C. He's addressing the northern kingdom of Israel. See, Israel had turned away from God toward apostasy. And God's message through Hosea was that he desired to restore Israel to glory because of his steadfast love for her. The whole theme of Hosea is that of a wandering, unfaithful spouse who the husband, ergo God, is calling back to himself. That's the big idea. The whole whole prophecy is that of restoration and redemption and bringing back. Even though they had strayed like an adulterous spouse, God was the good husband. And he was going to bring her back to himself. Chapter 6, we read God's interchange with Israel. But first, in this interchange of God and the people, the people speak first. And so Hosea chapter 6, the first three verses here, this is the people. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so we see here the language of of sickness. Look at verse 1. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Another verse 2, he will revive us. He will raise us up. The idea that, that something's wrong with us, we're broken, we're sick, and he, God, is going to restore and redeem and heal and make us better. That's the idea. Even though Israel was being punished for their disobedience, they still looked to God for their restoration and for their healing. There's even there's other imagery here about being revived on the third day. You can keep on going with that. I won't spend the time there today. But then the Lord responds in verse 4. Look at verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders wait for them, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's idolatry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. So here, in very vivid terms, painful terms for for the Jews to read, God is recounting their unfaithfulness. 
all the ways that they have gone astray, all the ways that they have done evil in his sight. But then at the end of verse 11, he promises to restore them. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people. So there's a promise of healing there. But verse 6 is of particular interest, and I know you caught it when we read it, because even when Israel was apostatizing and turning away from God and living in rebellion, they still made a show of religion. They still went to temple. They still did all the stuff. They still made sacrifice. They performed the sacrifice. They observed the feasts. They still did the things of religion, even though, as Jesus later says, your heart's far from me. Your heart isn't there. It was all for show. It didn't mean anything. So, with the fact that that's true, that they're doing all the showy things in religion, their heart is far from God, that's why he says in verse 6, I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice. And not sacrifice being a virtue. He's talking about animal sacrifice, the, the, actual thing, the stuff of, the, um, of the, what's happening on the altar. The Hebrew here, word here is hesed. It means steadfast love or faithfulness or loving kindness. He says, I desire the faithfulness and the loving kindness and the steadfastness more than the empty sacrifice. After all, what good is religion if you're not faithful to the God of your religion? So he's saying, show me loyalty. Show me faithfulness. That's what he's saying. Further, he says in the next portion of the verse, he says, "I, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So show me loyalty, but also know me. Over and against the empty ritual sacrifices on the altar, God desires that his people would actually know him intimately, personally. He's saying, give me worshipers. Give me disciples. That's what I want. Not merely religious people. And it's this verse that Jesus quotes Back to the Pharisees. Go back to Matthew chapter 9. So that's the context of that verse. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. But the word here that's used in the Greek, elios, means mercy or pity or compassion. And Jesus really uses these words as corresponding terms with the Hebrew term uh, hesed, which is loving kindness or faithfulness or loyalty. But he's he's using these over against each other to, to illustrate the main point. The message of the Pharisees is this. Who cares about keeping up appearances? Who cares about ceremonial obedience and religious piety if you don't love people? What is the point of doing all these religious things? And he he chides them later in chapter 23, wearing these long robes and these phylacteries full of Bible verses and walking around quoting chapter and verse. What is the point of that if you actually hate the people you're ministering to? So the Pharisees, they looked really good on the outside. And they were upstanding and they were devout. But Jesus knew that on the inside, they were just as vile as the sinners and the tax collectors. Possibly even more so. The difference was that the sinners knew that they were sinners. But the Pharisees, they thought themselves to be righteous. Matthew 23, Jesus attacks their character. He notes while they look good on the outside, he says, inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, they're fools, they're hypocrites, they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. 
And yet they have the audacity to go and attack tax collectors when they did the exact same thing to widows. You see the, you see the hypocrisy there? He says, they're full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. And they have the audacity to attack prostitutes when they themselves are unclean. In truth, they were the last people on earth who should be castigating Jesus for eating with sinners. If anything, he left the worst sinners at the door in the Pharisees. They were the worst sinners in Israel because they knew better. You sin in ignorance, there's some mercy there for you. You know the law like the back of your head and the back of your hand, and you still do it deliberately? Woe to you. And that's what he says to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And so Jesus argues from logic. He argues from Scripture. And finally, he argues from his own authority. He declares at the end of verse 13, he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to notice something here about what he says. Jesus never soft pedals or downplays their sins, ever. You'll never find a single verse in the Bible where Jesus is backing off or soft pedaling or whispering about sin. It doesn't exist. He calls it what it is. And the Bible has very harsh things to say about sin. Scripture calls drunkenness licentiousness. It calls adultery and fornication evil. We make TV shows about it today that romanticize it. The Bible says it's evil. It calls homosexuality depravity. It calls transgenderism an abomination. It calls gossip malicious. We think gossip's a light thing. The Bible says it's malicious. You're you're murdering people on the inside with your words. Anarchy and lawlessness is called sinfulness. Atheism is called foolishness. And so we call sin, sin. But as we do that, we also must affirm Romans 3.23, that all have sinned. All have sinned. One more time. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us is exempt. All of us are sinners. And guess what? Here's some good news. Matthew eleven nineteen. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. The friend of sinners. He fellowships with the outcast. He associates with the lowly. He never calls us to affirm our sin, but rather he calls us to confess our sins so that we might be healed and redeemed. He buys us back. He purchases us with his own blood that we might be purified and cleansed. And so my friends, my message to you, if you're a sinner, you've come to the right place. This is not, I've heard this said a million times, but I still like it. This is not a museum for holy people. This is a hospital for sick people. And I'm the first one to admit that I have sinned and I am sick and need Christ, and so do you. But let me tell you, Jesus delights to save sinners. That's his business. That's his job. That's the reason he came to earth, to live and die and rise, is to redeem spiritually sick people and bring them to himself. It's a beautiful message. The world thinks that we're just a bunch of hateful people just calling out sin all the time, 
and treading on people and hurting their feelings and hating them and things like that, it's not true at all. Because the gospel necessitates that we're honest about sin, but we're even more truthful and more blunt about the gospel, the good news that people can be saved and redeemed. If if you only stop at sin, you've missed it. You've missed the whole gospel. Because the gospel is, while we're still sinners, Christ died for us and gave himself as an offering. He made payment. He went to the cross. Why do we have a cross up? To remind us that our sins are paid for on that cross. That all of the guilt and the shame and debauchery and wickedness of our sin has been paid for by Christ. It's taken away. Colossians 2 says it's taken out of the way. And he nails my sinfulness to the cross. And on that cross, my sin dies with him. And when he rises physically, we rise with him. And we're given new life in Christ. We're new creatures, new creations. The old has passed away. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he lists a whole bunch of sins and he says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. I'd say, I don't know all of your history. You don't know all my history. But I'm sure that there's enough in this room to embarrass each other with our past life. But guess what? All that in Christ doesn't matter anymore. We don't parade our sinfulness. We we parade the grace of God to redeem us from sinfulness. It's a very different message. It's a message of hope. It's a message of reconciliation. And it's a message of redemption and restoration. Whereby Jesus calls you to turn from your sins, trust Him for life, and follow Him as a disciple the way that Matthew did. Because Matthew left everything. As soon as he walked out of that booth, he was no longer a tax collector. The people on the street, they probably still spit on him. They still saw him in their minds as a tax collector. But now he's with Christ. And he knows that I'm not who I used to be. I belong to Jesus. And I follow him. Say whatever you want about me, that's fine. I belong to Christ. Let me ask you, do you belong to Jesus? Do you follow him? Have you been born again? Do you have a new heart, a new spirit within you? If you don't, I plead with you. I beg you. Turn from your sins. Forsake them. And trust in Jesus Christ alone. He will forgive you. He'll restore you. And he'll give you new life. And one day you will be with him forever in eternity. With no sin. No flesh. Just peace and rest and joy of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is. I just think about the fact that when we consider our own life, Lord, we do consider that we have sin. All of us have come from a place where we have sins that wreck us. And Lord, while we individually think that maybe our sins are worse than someone else's or maybe theirs are worse than ours, Bottom line, we confess with David in Psalm 51 that it is against you and you alone that we've sinned. All of our sin, no matter what it is, is detestable in your sight. But at the same time, you justify the ungodly. You extend your hand to sinners. You you dine with us. You bring us to yourself. You come and meet us where we are and you call us by name. 
and you tell us to follow. What a privilege that I just cannot even put words to the magnanimity of such a thing. But God, you are so gracious and so merciful not to look past my sin, but to forgive me in my sin and call me out of it. What a tremendous blessing and a joy to have forgiveness and spiritual cleansing in Christ. I pray, Lord, earnestly that you would meet us where we are. And if there are those here who are struggling and suffering with the sickness of sin, I pray that they would run to you wholeheartedly and cast it off and say, Lord, rescue me, forgive me, cleanse me, save me, and help me to walk in righteousness. Because God, you are worthy to be praised and you redeem those who need redemption. We thank you for your loving kindness and for your salvation. We pray all this in your name. Amen.